Welcome to the HRS Podcast, the show where we talk to experts about the things that can go wrong in the workplace and how to avoid them. This podcast is presented by ActDesk, the software that helps employers prevent harassment and spot talent inside their organizations. After the show, learn more at ActDesk.com. That's E-K-D-E-S-K.com. But for now, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Our topic today is best practices for compliance hotlines. Many organizations provide anonymous, or sometimes not so anonymous, hotlines for employees to report misconduct they witness or suspect, including financial misconduct, workplace harassment or discrimination, or other issues. Joining us to discuss this topic is Eugene Soltis. Eugene is the Jakursky Family Associate Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School, where his research focuses on corporate misconduct and fraud and how organizations design cultures and compliance systems to confront these challenges. Last spring, I was excited to come across Eugene's research in an article he and a co-author wrote in the Harvard Business Review, Why Compliance Programs Fail and How to Fix Them. And I'll include a link to that article in this episode's show notes. Eugene, welcome to the HRS Podcast. It's a pleasure to join you. You've spent part of your academic career studying hotlines, including working directly with some big companies and some corporate attorneys to understand the role that hotlines play in reducing risk and meeting compliance obligations. Could you give us an overview of the research you do? Why do hotlines matter, particularly in the HR and, and workplace issue sort of space? And, uh, it, it's incredible to look at the, the work about how do violations in the workplace get reported and the overwhelming evidence is that tips and hotlines are the most valuable source. One of my colleagues at the University of Chicago, uh, Luigi Zingales, and some of his co-authors actually did a paper where they looked at how do violations get reported. And they find that actually it's through employees, more so than auditors, analysts, the media, are the people that are most frequently to report misconduct and actually that's the source that gets detected. And Similar work by the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners finds that I believe it's 40% of all cases of misconduct are detected through tips. So it's not only this is how they're detected, but it actually shortens the length of the misconduct. So having an avenue in which employees can report things that they observe that not only are, are potential legal violations, but things that are undermining the culture of the workplace is just absolutely paramount. And that's just over and over again in the research literature. There's maybe a little bit of a, an element that folks who are on the ground, knowledge is dispersed within an organization, and the people who live the knowledge on a day-to-day -day basis are folks who work there, and it, so it makes sense that they would be the richest source for those types of tips and that sort of information, even more so than maybe outside folks like auditors be able to pick up. Let's say that I'm a general counsel, or I'm a compliance, or I'm an HR officer or executive, and I come to you and I say, we've never had a hotline but we're starting one. We want to get one set up and we want to do it the right way. What would you say to this person in terms of these are the best practices, these are the objectives that a hotline really needs to be achieving, and here are the elements you need in order to achieve those objectives? So I think the first question to ask is, what are you setting this hotline for? I mean, I think naturally one of the first things that people think about is liability and the natural benefits that come with that. And, you know, there's a number of large hotline carriers that can provide 24-7 variety of different languages to address what I think of are a lot of the liability concerns associated with not having a hotline. But I think the next question, once you get past that initial set, which is kind of what any 
hotline provider would basically provide is what are you seeking to achieve with this within your firm's culture and how will this support what you want to achieve from a conversation of people being able and willing to speak up? Because I think one of the challenges that arise is you can set up a hotline and so you're going to get some information, but do you have the support and resources to actually then do the investigation? Do you actually have the ability that if someone actually comes in and gives something anonymous through a hotline, that you're actually going to be able to get to the bottom of that? And that's not a trivial matter. Even the largest, most sophisticated firms in the world really struggle with that. And the challenge that leads to is an employee brings you a complaint, does so anonymously, provides imperfect information, and then doesn't follow up later, even if you give them a path to follow up. Later on, they're going to blame you, that is the organization, for not being able to resolve this, for, for not addressing the manager who's harassing or discriminating someone. And so I think it's not just the putting up the hotline. That, that's really, the, I think, in some ways, the easy part. The hard part is then how do you create the system and environment around, around a hotline to actually support that environment, to have a setting in which employees feel what they're placing in the hotline is actually being valued. And I should note that if there's any listeners that are listening that are actually in the process of just setting up their first hotline, I would welcome them to actually drop me an email because this is an area that me and some of uh, my colleagues are actually doing some work on. We'd love to know how people are actually thinking about this and to love, love to discuss more. I think that's a great invitation for the listeners. And, and maybe as part of that, could you give us a little bit more flavor about your background as an academic researcher and, and kind of what you've been doing in the, the hotline space and how you've been delving into the detailed parts of that area? Of course. So over the last decade, most of my research at, at Harvard Business School uh, and increasingly my, my teaching is focused on misconduct that arises within organizations and how to develop both cultures and processes and systems to help mitigate that. And as part of that, how we mitigate misconduct, we can think of codes of conduct, we can think of monitoring programs, we can think of analytics. There's a whole host of different ways to really attack those challenges. Hotlines is one of the central ways of doing that. Much of my work originally focused on, I would say, the psychology and organizational processes associated with misconduct. Frankly, why reasonable, often smart, well-intentioned managers end up engaged in, in conduct that's not only adverse to their organizations, but also adverse to themselves. Mm-hmm. Why does that happen? Um, what are the social norms that actually give rise to that? How do managers actually influence that for the better or worse within their organizations. And so that's where I spent a lot of my time, actually mainly spending a lot of time with managers and actually senior executives who themselves engaged in misconduct to try to better understand what happened, why that actually arose, and why they, in some instances, didn't actually see the dramatic ramifications that were going to occur down the road. And now much more of my research is trying to figure out, now that I gave a better grip on the why question and some of the drivers of it, is what can we do? How can we design the processes so they're actually effective in mitigating this and not simply things that are processes that simply help insulate the firm and provide legal protection? So you've probably identified a lot of best practices in that research, at least for compliance hotlines. And I expect that you've probably seen some examples of not-so-best practices. Are there not best practices that you would point out that companies should avoid that you've, you've encountered? Yeah, so I have definitely seen a couple. I'll give two examples, uh, but there's a whole host. One is, is just simply not actually having one hotline, of actually having three or four or seven different ways. I'll actually give the example of my own university, uh, which really has done just tremendous work of trying to give students who, uh, whether we're talking about pressure, 
might feel abused in some way, that themselves are our victims, to speak out. And it's so historically always in the bathrooms, and this happened since I was a college student, even when I joined the faculty, there was always posting of eight different numbers one could call different resources. And on one hand, that was great. I mean, there's just so many resources, and that's, I think, in the best of way, the university trying to help people. But the problem is, is I always look at that, is that someone's looking and just needs help and wants to report something. Where, where do I even start? So I can say I was thrilled when I actually saw at the beginning of our academic year, our new posting, where there's a centralized number. This is where you start when you have an issue or concern. And then that number will actually help find the appropriate resource, whether it's helping you, whether it's needing to report something serious that happened. So in some ways, trying to be too supportive and providing too many resources can actually be compromise the information that one's get. And it actually actually makes it more difficult for an organization to actually even collect everything that's going on. The second I will mention, and, and this is the one that is really probably frustrated me more than others. In, in recent research I've done, we've actually tested and looked at hotlines for, for large organizations. In so many organizations that actually say they have an anonymous hotline, to be honest, don't. And I've seen this in a couple dramatic ways. So in a recent paper I wrote in which we were actually looking and actually calling hotlines to examine them, two examples, both large respected firms. One firm, they had an email hotline, so very convenient. People could send something from their smartphone. We actually sent a question, effectively an allegation, that, that we wanted answer to. And we got an immediate email response back saying, we care a lot about these essential violations. We really want to help you through this. But actually, we only accept emails from the OI email accounts. Can you please resend this from your employee email account? We actually sent this. That, that from, kind of gives the show away right there. Yeah, I mean, we sent this from an anonymized Gmail account deliberately because this hotline was actually designed after Sarbanes-Oxley, which actually requires an anonymous hotline, at least for accounting and auditing matters, although most firms use the same hotline for their auditing, accounting matters under SOX that they would also use for, for HR reasons. To be honest, this, this was not only undermining it, but this was in direct opposition to having an anonymous hotline. And we found many examples of that, variants of, of people asking when you get off of the phone that we need you to provide more information to be able to really get to the bottom of this. I think there's other ways to go over about this. It's, you don't need the person's name to actually get the information you need. You need the actual underlying information. So if people are being vague and not telling you where something happened and they're being an anonymous person, you're right. You're not going to be able to substantiate or get to the bottom of it. But someone can still be anonymous, but you can still get the kind of information you need to do an effective investigation. And that's where I think we need to be a little bit smart about how we actually design those hotlines, what information we ask from people that are calling them, and then how we ultimately resolve the matter at the end. I think that's a really good point. From a practical standpoint, it sounds like not a good idea to have an HR hotline and an accounting audit hotline and maybe an ethics hotline or other hotlines. And, and also, anonymity uh, shouldn't just be a word that's thrown around. It, to have a system that is clearly not anonymous kind of breeds a little bit of cynicism, potentially, and uh, could reduce the, the candidates of the willingness of somebody to, to come forward with information that they think the company ought to have. In your article in the Harvard Business Review, you address the disconnect in compliance programs between having a program for just check-the-box purposes versus one that's really intended and really designed to reduce risk and increase compliance. Could you explore that disconnect a little bit as it relates to hotlines and HR issues? One of I think the real challenges that arises in misconduct-related issues within our organizations is we so often see these different risks as actually being quite siloed. So the HR risks fall under the HR, so harassment, discrimination, and then there's a set of legal compliance risks that fall under compliance or the general counsel. 
And these things are, are separate. And what I can say from the recent research we've been doing is that these things are absolutely interrelated. In fact, we actually find some still quite preliminary evidence suggesting that unsubstantiated HR issues are actually leading indicators of later financial compliance violations. Effectively, someone actually is being harassed by their boss. They report this to the organization. The organization doesn't do anything because perhaps the harassment is not actually illegal harassment, and so it's not substantiated. Nothing happens to that manager. And then what do we see six months, nine months down the road? We see that employee, in some sense, I think, frustrated with the organization, not taking a response, showing up late, being sloppy, taking resources from the organization. So effectively committing a whole different kind of violation that is not only bad to the organization, but also to themselves. And so I think we need to think about how these things are actually interrelated. You know, one of the challenges with, I think, HR investigations is there's a host of, I think, liability reasons why you can't necessarily get back to employees about the actual outcome of an uh, allegation, as it was, whether it's or not. But what a number of firms are doing, and I think really innovative, is not getting back to people about necessarily we fired that person or we didn't, but actually coming back at the end of an investigation and asking people how they felt they were treated during the process. So uh, issues that are not under litigation, going back to people that were both accusers, but also people that were potential victims, people that were alleged to have engaged in violations, going around and actually figuring out, do you feel that you were treated fairly in this process? Do you feel that your concerns were adequately heard? They might not agree with the outcome. In fact, they might deeply disagree with the outcome to the extent that they have visibility around that. And that's something that can't be changed. But what one can do is to make sure that people feel respected throughout that process. And I think that's ultimately what people really need from their organization. And so that's one another kind of innovative way to start thinking about this kind of whole ecosystem. I think that's such a good point regarding just how people are treated in the process. So often, I, I think employment charges that are filed with an employment commission or litigation that's filed may not be driven entirely by the underlying conduct. It may be driven by just dissatisfaction with the process that happened internally or a feeling that the process was roughshod or, or didn't really uh, take into account or take seriously the, the allegations or complaints that were made. And, and that can definitely create some righteous and understandably some righteous indignation on the part of employees who bring issues forward. For HR leaders who are thinking about hotline efficacy, what are some metrics that matter in terms of whether issues are actually getting reported in a hotline? It's one thing to set up a hotline and announce that it's available. It's another thing to actually get those issues be reported and have some confidence that it's fairly comprehensive or it's getting a good amount of the issues that exist. How can those metrics be collected and analyzed? And does it take having a PhD in economics or, or statistics to be able to assess whether you've got an effective hotline or not? Luckily not, but I like to think there's some extra tricks one can do uh, if you went to excessive amount of school like I did. But uh, <laughs> let me give one, one easy idea, and that's the surveying uh, and some very basic survey questions that can be asked. It's fascinating. If you ask people within most organizations, if you see a violation, will you report it? Most solid organizations that are pretty well-functioning are going to see 90-plus percent, 95% of people saying, yes, of course, if I see a violation, I'll report it naturally. Then ask people later on in the survey, ask them a slightly different question. Did you see a violation in the past year? So people will say yes or no. And then ask the question, if you saw a violation, did you report it to your manager, hotline, some, some source? What you'll find 
in every organization I've ever looked at, a dramatically different answer. You're not going to see 95%. You'll probably see something like 30, 40, 50%. Most violations that people observe don't, or people don't report them, even though people say they will. And I think this is actually says something really profound about people's behavior. So if you ask people why they're concerned about retaliation, but there are also concerns that people have. They just don't want to see someone they work with get fired or be punished because of something they've done. They don't know if they have all the information. There's a whole host of complex reasons that could potentially contribute to this, which are worthy to explore. But actually monitoring that metric about people's willingness to speak up, conditional on having seen a violation, is a very simple one to start figuring out whether you're actually detecting the kinds of information that you want and potentially what part of the iceberg, so to speak, is above the water and what's below and you might be missing. Is there an opportunity for, oftentimes we think of hotlines as being a little bit of a reactive tool, particularly if it's more of a check the box function of uh, we've subscribed to a hotline service, for example, here's the number, here's the email address, here's the, the portal you can go to, and maybe it's used and maybe it isn't. But is there a way that you see for hotlines to be more proactive in preventing issues versus just there to detect issues after the fact? And if so, what can companies do to achieve that? Uh, absolutely. This is a simple one. That is, so change the name. Hotline is a source where people think they need to have seen misconduct or seen alleged misconduct and they're reporting it. Phone calls it a helpline. So simply change the name. Hotline to helpline. People now see this as a source that they can not just report misconduct, but a place and resources they can actually go to ask questions when they're potentially uncertain about how to react or behave. Organizations that I know that have actually changed the name from hotline to helpline have all seen a dramatic increase in activity on that contact line. And that's because people are going there, not because people are reporting more misconduct, but people are now using it as a resource to figure out how to resolve issues in a preventative manner, thinking forward rather than just a behavior that's already occurred. I think so many of the hotlines have been created primarily as a liability tool. So we post a number, we've satisfied our Sarbanes-Oxley requirement, we're, we're making sure EEOC violations, you know, there's somewhere where people can report there's a harassment issue. But people are not really thinking about how helplines or hotlines actually support the firm's culture. And so I think the kinds of questions that you're asking in our discussion is really going to the, the latter. How do we actually create a, a helpline to actually support a firm's integrity culture rather than simply managing their liability risk? It sounds like there's a, a lot of opportunity there for hotlines and, and other reporting tools to move from a more reactive standpoint to more strategic and proactive standpoint. So I appreciate your insights on some things that we can do uh, as HR leaders to move forward with that. Eugene Soltis, thank you for joining us on the HR Risk Podcast. Great. Well, it was a pleasure joining you. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the HR Risk Podcast. This episode is presented by Ekdesk.com, the software that helps prevent workplace harassment and spot untapped talent. You can find show notes for today's episode at ekdesk.com slash podcast. That's E-K-D-E-S-K dot com slash podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next episode, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.